हेलो एवरीवन दिस इज कथक का चक्कर माय नेम इज प्रमित एंड दिस प्लेस इज डिजाइन टू बी अ सेंट्रल प्लेटफॉर्म टू ब्रिंग कॉन्वर्सेशंस विद कथकर्स अक्रॉस द ग्लोब या टुडे आई हैव विद मी रचना नवास she is an artist choreographer educator and entrepreneur in the indian classical dance bringing a relevant voice to kathak deemed charismatic and revelatory by the san francisco chronicle rashna is a fierce and passionate performer displaying the depth of her training under legendary master and icon pandit jaysdas and serving as a distinguished torchbearer of the treasured lineage she is a founding artist of the leela dance collective an all women led and artist led organization producing powerful works through the collective creativity of trailblazers in kathak rashnadi how are you hello pramit how are you namaskar namaskar rashnadi uh yeah so just a funny story to share with you cuz uh, my cousins around 9 years old and so she lives in the fremont area and i and one of the, and i'd be interested and i i'd love it if she takes up kathak but you know 9 year old uh like girls in the south asian community are going to have a full plate of hobbies and stuff like that so and i was thinking about if i had to send her one video to get her interested in kathak which one would it be so i picked the one that you have on your instagram about you teaching job is going to your students and like there's one video that the one that i saw first about you because that was the one that really stood out to me when you teaching with that intensity so that's the one i sent to her so we'll see what happens uh <laughs> but, but I feel that's a great way to introduce someone to Kathak if they know nothing about it. What did she say? Anything? Nothing yet. We'll see because she does have a full plate so I I'm not going to like start pushing things on to her and stuff like that. So we'll see. Well, that's good for you. Good for you that you're, you know, doing that work of being the ambassador for the art, figuring out what is the how to, you know, create that that bridge of of excitement for different mm-hmm. audiences. That's right. So, Rashnadi, mm-hmm. just to get started off with, you know that you recently moved to New York, and with everything going on, how has that been for you? You know, even though it's during the pandemic, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's. A, I, I would like to say it's towards the, you know, hopefully the tapering off of the pandemic and not the other way around, but. You know, I've always loved New York. I've been coming here. It's not anything new to me. I've been coming and teaching here um and performing in for the last 4 5 5 years, really. So, um, you know, it's really just kind of making that a bit more um my travels here being a bit more permanent. So, it was really kind of an arc that made a lot of sense i've been building a base here and students and also now have a couple of teachers here as well so um the time was the time really was right and um you know and my passion has been that um you know new york city is a dance capital of the world but these these teachings um of my guruji and of his guruji really of our of our lineage these particular teachings are not here in the new york um really um tries in the tri-state area um the closest is my guru didi gretchen hayden in boston she has had jandika for you know established for many years but not here in new york city so it's been a very big desire of mine to um 
to spread, I mean, in general, always to spread the teachings, but particularly to spread them here. And so that New Yorkers can have the chance to benefit from the, from the teachings. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned Chandika. I think Anjali, this episode is going to come out in July, I think. So that's what the, she kind of discussed that a bit there as well. And I, and I always hop in for one of her workshops when she puts that out there. Uh, she, actually, she, she helped me correct a posture thing that I was struggling for like months. Oh, good. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. she picked it up on camera, but she did. And I'm really glad she, that she did. That's great. Yes, she and I trained together for many years and danced in the company together. So, And you mentioned building a base. Uh, so over the four or five years, what, does that, what did that look, process look like for you when you were building a base in New York? Um, I mean, I was coming at first maybe a few times a year and I was just teaching workshops and trying to understand what the environment was, what the interest is. You know, you have to, every place is different. You have to really study the community and study, you know, what, where are the students coming from? What lens are they coming from? So honestly, I was learning. <laughs> That, that was the process is, is where, you know, um, what is the context of the, the students that were coming? And really I was learning first how to teach them. Um, and then in the process, um, understanding what, what it was like and what, what I was very pleasantly surprised. I don't know if I would say surprised, but I was, I was happy about was that you know, the way that I teach is very much, uh, I would go, I would probably go as far to say I'm a bit of a purist. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the teachings are, um, I like to carry them to pass them down in a way that is very, very authentic and true to the way they were passed down to me. You know, the methods may be a bit different. Generation, those methods change. I mean, you know, we, we have to go with the times and you do have to know your audience, but it is pretty, um, it's very intense. And it's not in a way that is, okay, you know, I want to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and a little bit from here. It's no, this is, if you really want to study, this is, you have to think long-term. And what I was very, very happy about is that it seems that the younger generation is interested in that, which I think sometimes I feel like, no, you know, I don't think people want that anymore. And I, it's not true. What I found is that the younger generation is searching for something meaningful, is searching for you know, really having something that they can, um, that they can sink their, they can really sink into. And without having a place to do that, there's, there's a feeling of being lost. Okay, I have to take a little from here. I mean, go here and take a little from there. Let me jump from here. I got bored with this. Oh, let me go here. I'm getting bored with this. But it's only because there isn't something that will allow them to do that. So, and again, it's not for everybody, certainly not, but, um, but I'm, I'm very, very happy that, that so many are interested in that. 
So um, that's something that I learned a lot in the in the in the time that I've been coming to New York and doing workshops and having students, especially because what I found was that they wanted me to keep coming back. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just okay, yeah, I did my workshop and now I'm good. It was no, no, we wanna we wanna keep learning in this philosophy. So, you know, that's kind of how it just kept going. It kept increasing. I started coming more and more often uh, to a point that right before the pandemic, by 2019, I was going every other month. Um, yeah. And doing intensives, four-day intensives, where the students here would drop everything for those four days and study, you know? Um, and we would do long hours. We would have lunches together, dinners together, all of that. So I knew, you know, right before the pandemic, I think it's time. I think it's time that um, I can, I can really, really, the, you know, devote where my me actually shifting here permanently can make an impact. And my work in the Bay Area was, um, which I've been doing for, you know, had been doing for 22, 23 years, has, um, uh, there have there, the next generation has stepped up. There are new leaders coming up and actually me continuing to do the work is holding them back. They need the space to be able to now, you know, have their own, um, some of their own vision and their own ideas. Otherwise they're just keep looking to me, you know, um, to do this and do that. So it was, it was a really, I think a good time and then, of course, the pandemic happened, so, you know, had to wait another year. But I think in in the end, that ended up being good. Right. And, yeah, when you mentioned the younger generation, like, um, one of the people I've been talking to, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're thinking of someone else in the younger generation. So, <laughs> me and Riyadi have been corresponding a, a little bit. So, Riyadi, so yeah. we, we are going to be doing a Riyadi session, I think, last week of June. So, I, I have to check my oh, calendar. Okay. So, she she actually reached, like, we were talking and she, she, she asked me to do one. And I was like, you know, I've done only one or two years of Kathak. What are you going to get out of it? For me, it's, like, amazing. But I'm so glad that she set that up. And I'm very excited for that as well. And mm -hmm. with uh, like so, say, and, and Sarah Morelli, the Sarah set up a Hindustani classical workshop, and there Carrie D was leading one some of the workshops as well. So I was got got to be part of her group. So I yeah. got to see a little bit of what the next generation is offering. Yes. These are the next generation. These are the the um, Leela Dance Collective next generation dancers. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So would that put uh, the like Chitrasa's lineage? Would that be like the third generation then, or the? Oh. I was like a seventh or eighth generation <laughs> because, you know, Guruji, his first generation is in the 1970s. Gretchen D is Guruji's first, well, act, I believe she's the first, what, what, I mean, when we call, when we say generations, we're not talking about 25 years. <laughs> we're talking, you know, when you have, when you're a teacher and a guru and you been doing it for so long. It depends. You have different, you have like a batches, right? Um, and yeah, you know, it's those, those batches I think can last anywhere from like maybe a seven to 12 year period or something. Right? So um, he, Guruji always used to call, I was his last generation, actually. Um, his pretty much, I mean, when I say last, I mean last that like became, you know, took this on as, 
as our life, as my life. Uh, and, you know, was, you know, a shisha. So I, I think that, so no, this, if you say the next generations, you might say they're like the first generations who didn't study with Guruji directly. I, you might want to call them more like that, or you could say they're the first generations of me and my gurus, my guru sisters are training, right? I wouldn't even, you know, call, you know, I wouldn't even, um, yeah, uh, that's how I would, I would, you know? Yeah. It's- okay. That makes sense then. Yeah. All right. So I have that straight now. And <laughs> so going from generation to generation, I guess specifically for you, Rashna, you said that, uh, that you're a purist and the way you've been taught is kind of the way you teach, but what has, what, in what ways do you teach differently from your Guruji? Or what are the things you've adapted over the times as the times change? Things were different, right? Things mm-hmm. are, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like an old person because that's, that's, <laughs> that's just, it's just things change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that, you know, when I was learn when I first started learning uh, as a South Asian American, even as a South Asian American, yes, there were pressures, of course, there always are, but it's nothing like it is now. It was nothing. Now. I would say, you know, I always tell um, a lot of my younger students now, when we went to college, undergraduate, nobody was declared a ma- nobody had a declared major. Nobody. Which is unheard of now. I think you're considered like a loser if you don't have a declared major now. In fact, it was the opposite. Anybody who had a declared major when they were 18 years old, when I went to college, which was in the mid 90s, was like, oh, that's weird. Like, that's some person who has some weird thing figured out. And like, I don't, uh, like, we didn't, I didn't know what to do with those people. Um, and so, yes, we had an idea and we took courses in the things that we, you know, we liked, but we took courses in so many other things. It was normal to explore. It was normal for people to take five years to graduate college. That was me because we took so many courses in just things you liked and wanted to learn about. Um, even if you were pre-med, you would do pre-med courses, but then you would major in history and major in sociology. These were normal things for South Asian kids at that time. I don't see that so much anymore, even though the career options are broader now. Oh, there are South Asians doing journalism, doing broadcasting, doing all kinds of things. But the level of, of of a feeling that you have to do all of these things and you have to do it really fast and that there's so much competition that wasn't there. And where I'm going with this is that, you know, we had more time. We had more, we were more relaxed. And I started studying three days a week within the first six months of my study. It wasn't like, pulling teeth to get somebody to come once a week. I mean, come twice a week. It was three days a week. I, um, I started studying. And so I think, you know, and we had, and then I started doing it four days a week. And, you know, I ended up 
molding my life around the dance. It's not that it was so easy for me to I, to go full time. That happened much later. I very much had continued my study. I very much had a career, another career for a long time, but I molded it around dance. And I think now what's, um, because that is not, it's there, that environment is a little bit different, especially if you're talking about South Asians. Um, so the learning is slower, I will say. Um, and I will say that, you know, you, you have to do things in more and more short form, you know, you, there's, you have to like modify, you know, things can't be as long, things can't be as, you know, we used to do retreats that were seven days long, seven days. We were dancing from 6 a.m. in the morning to the, the sunrise, you know, um, those are harder to do. Those are harder for people, people are doing a million other things. So, you know, I think those are some of the things, I, it, again, you know, I can't, there's, there's always other things, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in the U.S. So the way that I talk to the students, I utilize my own experience having lived the same life that most of the kids I teach are living, right? I mean, Guruji grew up in India and lived a completely different life, right? He, he's learning about these kids' lives when he teaches them. So it was very different. So when I, I teach, I, I teach with the perspective of knowing that they're, that, you know, I, I myself, like I said, I've lived that life myself. So, um, so I think there's, there's stylistic differences, you know, uh, in, in, in how I teach. Um, you know, I think one other thing I would say is that um, we institutionalized the, the teachings, right? Meaning we've created curriculum and have created levels. This is all a very contemporary concept. <laughs> That's not how Indian classical dance you know, is necessarily taught. I mean, it, it's even the way I learned when I walked into a class, the first class, there were people who had been learning for 10 years. And I had to stand in the back and flail for two to three years. <laughs> um, that's just how it was. You, you, don't, you don't have, I mean, what do you, first of all, if you don't have hundreds of students, there were only two classes. <laughs> So that's how you learn. And, um, you know, you, you figure it out. You make friends, you recite, you figure it out. Now we have levels. And even within those levels, <laughs> people are like, but um, there's people who have, I, did I miss something? Because I, 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 I didn't come, I, I wasn't there for the first two weeks of class. I'm like, no, you didn't miss anything. <laughs> You won't miss anything. There are people here who have been learning for up to a year. Now it's like only a year, but it's like the more and more and more the with more minutia that you you um, break down the levels, the more people actually want those levels. 
<laughs> right, because it's the way that you're you're used to studying things. It's the way the Western framework is, which India has now as well. Um, it's that's the way how academic achievement is done. So it's an easier way to understand. And of course, if you want to have an institution, you do need to be able to have people understand how they're moving up, what progress they're making. So we have gone with the times. That is very much evolving with the times. But, you know, I bear, I didn't really learn that way. I didn't really learn that way. The, the levels were starting to be more crystallized when I was around, when I first started, but it wasn't, it wasn't very clear. And Guruji certainly didn't follow them. He himself used to make fun of the levels. He would say, what is this level two, B, three, C? I don't function this way. And he would, in night before a big intensive, he would cancel the, all of the levels we made. No, 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 Put everybody in one room. No, I don't, I don't want to teach like that. And then we would be calling parents, changing times because, <laughs> because he didn't want to teach like that. That's so. Um, so I would say, you know, a lot of things are evolving. Mm. I, I'm still thinking of the whole, like, all, because like, I'm, I started Kathak like two years ago, so I can't even imagine Kathak without levels in the sense, how, how would I be, what would I be doing in a batch where everyone knows and how would I function? So I, I was just trying to picture that while you were saying this. So that sounds very, yeah, that would just be totally different compared to how I was doing it. So. Well, because these gurus, the masters don't teach like that. They teach like the art is an ocean. I am going to throw you a bone. You, if you want to catch it or throw you, you know, what, throw you something, if you catch it and do something and take it and then great. Right? It's like that. There's no spoon feeding. It's not spoon feeding. Now everybody wants to be spoon fed. I hate to say it, <laughs> but you know, we, I, I try very, and I talk about this in my class. I talk, I talk very openly about this in the class that you're, you know, actually what I'm doing right now is spoon feeding. I, I, I you know, I, I joke <laughs> that especially when more, when, when students want more, ask more questions, more and more questions, but what about this? And what about that? What about, I said, no, no more, no more explanation. This is spoon feeding to the highest extent. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. I am definitely like, uh, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I mean, I am definitely one of that person in class who asks all that, all the questions. And I can't really function in class without questions. Like, I feel like I need that. Otherwise, yeah, it doesn't feel good. But yes, yeah, sometimes I do ask too many, and, so, and at at some point, you just need to like stop and just do it, and it'll be well, answered. I don't allow a lot of questions during <laughs> almost. Oh, you know, very, it's rare. It's rare. Um, we certainly could not. And this, in this way, I, I have kept this almost the same liturgy. Um, you know, we certainly could never ask during class. What something that Guruji changed very much from the way his guru taught, I'll say, is that when his guruji taught him, he wouldn't ask questions, period, ever. Right. And that's true, not just with dance training. That's true with my parents say that about their, my grandparents. You don't ask your parents why. <laughs> you just do. Right. Now, that is a change. In my opinion, a good change, right? Because it is good to have healthy dialogue. And my Guruji 
encouraged that a lot. Not during class, but after class, he in fact wouldn't even let us leave unless we asked questions when we were sitting. Um, and he would even say, he would say, the students in class that doesn't ask questions, either the teacher is dumb or the students are dumb. So, um, so he would encourage that dialogue. And in our one-to-one -one relationship, he, I asked him millions of questions, not about you know where the hand goes and where the foot goes about some composition, but about life, about teachings, um, about why he said something and that it made me upset. He loved to process and hear about how, you know, about things that, you know, emotionally what I was going through, um, psychologically what I was going through. He really liked to process those things. And that's certainly not, no way was he doing that with his Gurdjie. <laughs> that wasn't the culture at all. So, um, you know, I like to continue. I do that very much, you know, as well with my students. The whole uh, processing thing is something kind of just happened with me last class in the sense uh, I usually keep classes on the weekends. This time I kept class at, at like 5 p.m., which means I was rushing from work and into class and changing in. So I was kind of tired and exhausted. And uh, so my instructor, then we kind of uh, picked up on it. And at the end of class, he asked me to stay back and he said, Pramit, are you okay? Like, uh, and I didn't know how he picked, huh? Who was this? Uh, so my, my Kathak teacher is Tanvir Alam. He's based out of Toronto. Right. So, yeah, so I, I, take, I, I take private lessons with him and some group as well. So mm -hmm. then he said, are you okay? And uh, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize it was showing on my face or something, but yeah, I wasn't because like I had a long day and it was just exhausting to do it after class. But I was pretty surprised that he picked up on it and I did up and he actually changed. And I think he noticed it when I walked in because like usually we start with some vigorous that car. That time we just laid down and he asked me to feel the tensions in my body. So I think he just changed that based on what he, would, he sensed was going through my head. So I do really appreciate that sense that teachers have about their students. And with that, going to the next thing, Rashnadi, I guess talking about uh, like teaching younger generation and youth. So I guess I, I'm very curious as to like to understand why is that very important to you or how did you pick that up? You know, I, <clears throat> um, I, I wasn't necessarily something that I, you know, uh, was trying to uh, be some, you know, it wasn't like from the very beginning that I was like, oh, I want to teach kids. <laughs> um, and that's just how it was for all of us. We had to teach kids. Guruji believed that you have to teach children. Uh, they are the purest, you know, members of our society, <laughs> right? Spirits and souls. Um, and uh, it's really important that you learn from that. And on top of that, I think teaching children as your first thing that you do as a teacher, right, is uh, a little more forgiving than when you're teaching adults, right? And it's a great training ground for being a teacher. And so all of us, that was pretty much a rite of passage was that we had to teach children. And um, it teaches you from the very beginning, um, patience. Um, and it teaches you how to command because 
you know, children can can sniff your fear and your hesitation from a mile away. So you have to really, really learn how to how to conduct a room, right? So that was very, very important to Guruji that we that each one of us began by teaching children and then, you know, start to move into teaching adults. But he just believed that we you had to teach, period. Nobody was, I will make very clear, he did not believe that you could be just a performer at all. I believe that. You, this knowledge is being given to you. It is your responsibility. Keep, keep it going. Keep that knowledge going. It's not ours to keep. And if you have the mentality that you receive this knowledge and then it stays in you, it's just so you can go around and perform and that's it. Um, that was not the teachings. The teachings were that as soon as you have some, you have enough knowledge, now you have to continue that energetic transmission of the knowledge and to, so that you have that attitude that it's not yours to keep. So, you know, and we used to have debates about this sometimes because being a performer and being a teacher are often at odds with one another in terms of your schedule, in terms of, you know, your ability to be, because teaching requires stability and requires you to, you know, be in one place and performing takes you all over. But to be very honest, Guruji's teachings were that he actually, the teaching is that important that you will have to make sacrifices. You will have to make performance sacrifices. That is how I was taught. That is what I was taught. And that's what I continue to do to this day. It's not that I don't perform, I absolutely do. But um, I will not, you know, I will, I will never be and have never been, you know, person that's going to be touring uh, your, you know, eight months of the year. Um, because, and I'm very glad to be very honest with you. I'm very, at times I would say was frustrating. There were times when that's why we had debates about it. But I would say at this point, I am so grateful that that's what was instilled in me because teaching grounds me. Teaching is what keeps you humble. Teaching um, informs my artistry. Teaching informs what kind of a performer I am and vice versa. Doesn't mean that you, then you should get comfortable with teaching only. Um, you may not be some, you know, end up being a world performer, but you must be a practitioner, a strong practitioner, which means that you must perform sometimes. And you know, my performance informs my teaching. So teaching is a form of performance, actually. That's how I would. Um, you, you know, the, the reason I'm nodding is that uh, you mentioned teaching is a form of performance. And that's the first, when I, when I, when I did the episode with Saiviji, that's the first thing we started off with, because that's what she wanted to talk about first. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, it's a full performance. Are you kidding? <laughs> From the moment you walk in, it yeah. is a yeah. And yeah, I've, I had a lot. I've had a lot of guests uh, right now. So, and depending on their background, they've either been under teachers who are full time or 
teachers who were kind of younger and like kind of establishing themselves at that time and in the latter category they've often said that you know their teachers weren't available for them or maybe they weren't been able to make the time in the way they wanted to just because they kind of had their priorities and they kind of have a teaching and kind of balancing that as well so yeah i have seen different dynamics in the sense of people who have been trained by people who are full time teachers and people who are kind of establishing themselves and kind of younger in the same place so that's something i always think about as to how those dynamics play out as well yeah it's a very big responsibility to and um that's a responsibility that i've taken very seriously and it wasn't and it honestly to to become a disciple of my guruji it was not a responsibility you could take lightly it really and you know um being there for your students making time for them um it ha- has you know is very much a part of it and it, i will not take on new students if i don't have if i wouldn't if i won't have the the capacity you know to do that and some of my guru sisters are better at that you know some of us are better at that say you know that is one of sevi's um greatest you know uh, um strengths as a teacher how much time she gives i don't give as much time as she does you know um we i we learn from each other in terms of my guru sisters but she gives a great amount of time to her students and and guruji gave you know a uh, unreasonable amount of time to us <laughs> you know un- it was unreasonable how much he gave to us and um on that note when we talk about say responsibility because that's something i'm very curious about as well in the sense uh when it's your uh, if like as you as you're practicing kathak say in the us now say california new york and some of the pockets where like south asian community is a bit larger is a little different but in general if you're presenting say to an audience that may not be acquainted with kathak when it comes to sharing that responsibility like from the dancer's perspective you need to educate your audiences but you may not you, it's also reasonable to expect your audiences to know a little bit about a performance they're entering this the theater into so what do you feel about that responsibility of education um around being in brown audience members yeah like should the audience members be knowing what you're doing or it's on the dancers to completely impart that knowledge to the audience and where does that lie for you that balance um so my answer will probably be a bit controversial i believe that it is our responsibility as that is now when i say that um you know I don't of course I don't condone willful ignorance okay if you understand what I mean by that you know that like you are perp- you are you know going out of your way to not learn and going out of your way to stay ignorant and about it and that too you know what you just described to me about somebody you know i think you a white man you know upset with some dancers um that you should have done that that is not okay uh <laughs> you know because every artist by the way also f- has different views on this 
So, you know, for a white man to go up to the dancers and say that, I, that's ridiculous, you know? But my approach is different. And again, this is what I was taught. And I believe it. I believed it. And so it's what I, I continue. I was taught that audience is God. And if the audience is not interested in my performance, then that is on me. Then I have not done my job to understand this audience. I have not done my job to um, excite them. Find what it is, what is it about my art that will touch them? And you know, that's that's very much, very much what I believe. So, you know, I, I was um I was at some conference and actually was talking on this very topic with a group of Western artists. Um, and it was actually because many of these older institutions, Western arts institutions, have been struggling around audience, especially younger audience, like the opera and the symphony and ballets. And these are huge institutions, but they, they struggle with, with getting interest from younger audiences. And I was, in a, I was in a circle and they were complaining about the younger generation and saying, yeah, well, you know, what are you supposed to do when they're just sitting on their phone, right? You know, like, how can you appreciate a, you know, XYZ, right? Something of, of a symphony. And I, I actually said very point blank. I said, if I am doing, if I am dancing and people are looking at their phone, I'm not doing my job. I'm not doing my job. Um, they should be so captivated by what I'm doing that they don't, they forget about their phone. So um, that's, you know, and that is, that is what I believe being a Kataka is. You have to know your audience and you have to figure out how to reach them. That's why you have to go to them. You have to learn who they are. What are their interests? What do they, you know, what is it that excites them about the art? And you have to perform different things for different audiences. So if I am performing for a knowledgeable audience, very knowledgeable audience, you know, like in Kolkata, <laughs> right? Um, where there's musicians and then, yeah, so I might pick to do something in Saribara Matra and doing all these complicated compositions that nobody who doesn't know anything about this could possibly understand or appreciate. I'm not going to do something like that with an audience that doesn't understand Indian classical music or Kathak, right? I'm going to explain, look at this is what I'm doing uh, with my feet or do a ginti, explain the ginti. This is what's happening, you know, various different things. You, you have to figure it out. So that's what I would say. But I, can't, I do not, I don't, this is not a judgment whatsoever on how others, how other artists do approach this. That is, this is just how, how I was taught and how I, I carry it forward. Mm-hmm. And yeah, whenever I ask this question, I get a, like a spectrum of answers as well. So it's not about 
I'm not really looking for a right or wrong answer. I just want to see where people stand and how different people perceive it. That's yeah. what's important. And so, yeah, uh, if I mention Kolkata, because that's where I'm from. And sorry, sorry. Before you say that, I just wanted to say one, one more it, thing. Go for it. Yeah. Um, what I do not believe mm-hmm. is that it is my job to educate a critic. That is not my job. When you say critic, what does that mean? Like a dance critic or something? Or yes, if a dance critic shows up to my show, he or she absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely should have done research and should know and understand more about the art and about the artists themselves. That is, to me, is one of the most unacceptable aspects of, I mean, there's so many things that are unacceptable about the whole thing about dance critic, about being a critic in general, but who are you to write about my art when you don't know anything about it? And yes, that is, that is absolutely on your job. Sorry. That is, I have very opposite feeling about that because that is what you do for a living. Hmm. So is is that a scenario you face personally where a dance critic said something and they knew nothing about Kathak? I mean, not not just once or twice. Okay. My whole life. I mean, I faced that my entire career, and I've seen. I have watched Guruji face that his entire career. So. So, yeah. on, so that that would be a good question to ask next. So, if as a Kathaka, if you do get something from a dance critic and that's not fully informed, how should they uh, like counteract that, or how should they deal with it? Especially if the dance critic has some like say in the field or things like that. What are your? How much you want to get involved? Either you can never read, you know, never read articles. I have friends, I have, you know, tap dancer friends. They're like, I never, ever read them because um, they feel that the ones that are negative are, you know, they don't, are, are um, you know, uninformed. And the ones that are positive, they don't trust. There's some other agenda. So they don't even read them. You know, and they're like, and and when I'm, I'll be like, look at this, you know, and they'll be like, why are you even reading that? So, you know, I have, you know, or you can take a different approach, which is you can, you know, which, which we have also done. And as much as I say, no, it was on you to have to be, to educate, be educated. I've also been a part of helping to educate dance critics, you know, I've very much done that as well, because at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> who else is going to do it right but yeah okay yes the what you said about feedback is interesting because so one i had sujata di on the podcast and one thing she mentioned about feedback is that uh, like you like she she, the way she sees feedback uh, like from audiences is like you want to get to a point where you're neutral so your emotions don't go up and down with it in the sense that if you get positive feedback, it goes up. If you get negative, it goes down. And she said, as you get like more experience, you become more neutral to it and you do what you're supposed to and you take in the things, but you kind of become more, you fluctuate less, but. Yeah, I, I look at, honestly, I'll tell you how I see um, feedback. I mean, there are very in terms of feedback that is valuable to me feedback that is truly valuable in terms of something that i would incorporate in terms of something that i would take from it i will only take i will only i only want to hear that from those whose feedback i value 
that would be people who are very knowledgeable. You know, so I, I'm not going to take so, you know, lay audience members, their energy and their appreciation means a lot emotionally means a lot. I mean, without the without audience appreciating your art and being lifted by it, um, you know, you don't really have what, what what where what is the purpose of the art, right? So that is very appreciated. But there's a difference between feeling being appreciating that, you know, that love <laughs> for it um, versus, you know, um, it being something that I would really actually utilize for, you know, as critique for my performance. So whether it's positive or negative, the ones that I truly, truly listen to are those that are very knowledgeable. And those tend to usually be my own Guru sisters. Um, and um, and or and or to be honest, musicians, you know, Indian classical musicians, because they're the ones who really, really know, <laughs> you know, what if I'm playing the harmonium and doing something with nine and a half, they're the ones who know what I'm doing. So they're the ones that I will I would actually want to hear from, you know. And I guess uh, another thing I want to ask about, say, uh, in uh, like when when spreading the arts is like uh, for for the for youth, uh, I guess to put the background here. Since I started doing Kathak in Indiana, Indiana is the kind of place where there's one academy. So if you write Kathak Indiana, the, there's going to be the first website, and that's where I went to. So Dr. Randita Sen is who I started under. And so when we did our first showcase, I was sitting among some of my peers, and they were like 12 and 13 year old teenage girls. And I asked them, "Hey, do your friends know that you're doing Kathak?" And they just nodded, "No." No one does. And that kind of got me curious because I assume things might be different in Fremont, New York, where you have a higher South Asian population. But uh, have uh, with, when you've been teaching children, have you ever seen that they're hesitant to share the arts with their peers? If so, how do you handle those situations? Yes, yes. This is a, something that I, I talk about all the time. Um, and it's, this isn't just a, it's not just a thing about Kathak. This is a phenomenon for children of immigrants all children of immigrants. I think the, and I know this, being a, ch a child of immigrants, I think that, um, and this is, to be very honest, it's better now than it was when I was growing up. Because when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, I, I like, you know, early schooling in the 80s, there were dramatically fewer Indian people and as Indians, we had to assimilate to American culture much more. There was no fad, as what I like to call, of Indian culture, the way people now, you know, um, like to consume Indian culture. There was nothing like that at all. It was actually, you know, um, it was, I was embarrassed. I was, I mean, Inside, I was very proud. <laughs> On the outside, I was often embarrassed by certain things because it was made fun of because, you know, and so um, we compartmentalized. All the people that I grew up with, we were masters at compartmentalizing our two lives. Masters at it. And I think in general, children of immigrants become, it's a code switching. <laughs> become very good at. There are things that you, 
are just understood when you're around your, you know, Indian or South Asian community and they're just, un, they're just unspoken and they're just said, and you know, you're just, you're a certain way. Um, and then there's a way that you are around your non-Indian friends. They don't mix. Um, they mix now, to be very honest, much, much more than they did when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it's, you know, it was, it, there, there was, it was a, it was a thick line, <laughs> you know, uh, so much so that, you know, if my mom was talking to me in Hindi in the store, I would like start roaming around in the next aisle. Right. Because, you know, all kids want to do is be accepted. I mean, that's just, that's all you want. So, um, the thing with me is that I always had a very, very burning passion inside and a burning pride for Indian, my Indian heritage, more so than almost all of my Indian friends. I would say it was something, it's not a surprise that this is what I ended up doing because there was something there. So when push came to shove, I stood up, even when, you know, I stood up for it, um, even when it was really hard to. So I, I do think that that carries over now. It's just not as bad, but yes, I think that the problem is, is that we allow the dominant culture to dictate, you know, what is accepted, what defines the framework of dance, what defines the framework of, you know, what's cool, what define, you know, all of these things, we allow that to, to, to sort of decide. And then we ourselves filter, we filter what we're doing. So like, well, I'm doing this really cool dance, and you know internally it's you know you love it otherwise you wouldn't do it but you don't believe that other people would understand and that's why you don't talk about it you you we lack that confidence and belief in it that well i should proudly be talking about it and there is no code switching this is who i am i don't why do i have to switch for you why do i have to be different and change how what i talk about why do I have to make my brownness less brown to make you feel comfortable? Why do I have to not talk about my dance training because it makes, in order to make you feel more comfortable? And I talk to all of my youth about this, that you should be proud. Um, I, I, I bring this to the thing about letting people pronounce your name wrong. I, I get on the case of all my kids, never let anybody mispronounce your name. I cannot tell you how many people I grew up with whose real names were never actually uttered, meaning the proper way, <laughs> you know, um, because they themselves adopted the American way of saying their name. I think it is a related, these are all related issues. It's the same thing as to how you feel about how you talk about your dance training. It's, you know, are you willing to make others what you perceive to be uncomfortable? <laughs> you know, which in the end, it's not. It's actually not that way. What's un it's only uncomfortable if you are hesitant, right? If you're, if you are fully confident, you don't care, you have no hangups, you're, you, you have no insecurities about it. You know, people will always respect and be inspired by that. People of all life. So, yes, I had a lot to say about that. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, because so I kind of came to the states in 2014, 
So I've had like a condensed version of it, of like trying to assemble it and trying to connect with my Indian roots again and things like that. Um, so to give you an example, I did improv classes before Kathak. So yeah, in improv, improv classes, I'll always be a Bob or Peter or something like that. Uh, but you know, after I, Kathak has really helped me connect, reconnect with my Indian roots a whole lot or find something that is Indian that I'd like to do here. I'm not, I'm not really into cooking and all that that much. And so that way it's, it's a good way for me to do it without being in an Indian community. Cause I kind of like to live by myself too. Mm. So that's really helped me. But what if I had to do an improv class again, I, I will throw a Vikram or something at them and let them struggle with the, so, with the pronunciation a little bit. And I think that's part of the South Asian experience as well. Like when you have a con, when you have an exchange, they're going to hear the name and they're going to ha- ask you again. So I think that's part of it. And I'm, I'm more right. willing to let them do that now. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, we. Co- uh, I guess the next thing I want to cover with you, Rashnadi, is like the performance aspect of it. And I guess let like, and starting with compensation for performers. Um, if you, uh, I just want to get your insights on that because you know, of course, that you as an artist you should be compensated for your performances. But we also see a lot of artists, especially when they're starting out, do performances for free just to get some notoriety and fame. So just want to get your insights on that as well. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that there's a few aspects of this con- this topic. I think that you know, there is the very real, very um, somber, you know, reality that the economics of being a dancer at this juncture are poor, are very, they're not, they don't, it's a, it's a really, the math just doesn't work. Um, the amount of time that it takes to train, the amount of time that it takes for dancers, and dancers are at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to how much time you have to put in to how much you actually get back. Because to do a five-minute show, the amount that you have to rehearse, nobody understands. Nobody understands. Um, you know, that, the and the studio space that you need, the, the amount that you put in hours of your own time, as well as the fact that you need space, all of these things. And then on top of that, dancers are the lowest paid, get the lowest paid. I mean, musicians are still getting more. Your production manager gets paid more. Your lighting designer gets paid more. Your audio engineer gets paid more. The people who get paid the lowest and the last in the entire show are the dancers. And they're the ones who are organizing it. And they're the ones who are, you know, Uh, uh, you know, often, you know, are usually, and usually the dancers, right, are the quote-unquote stars of the show, quote-unquote, right? So there is that very, very clear, very sad reality that that's where things are. Um, Some of it is because there is a real, there's a lack of, of understanding in, of what it takes to be a dancer. And some of it is that, you know, there's, there's not enough support. Um, you know, 
art, all art needs some, needs to be subsidized, just like education. Education has to be subsidized. Nobody, uh, people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars of tuition to go to Harvard and then still donate to the university. They have like a $1 billion endowment, but nobody questions that. <laughs> education is subsidized all over the world because the economics don't work. Tuition does not pay for your education. You need more support. All universities have endowments and have more money and support and, don and donations that are coming in to help cover the costs of excellence in education. Just like that, art has to be subsidized. It does not work if it's not. So unless you have that, unless you have that support, the economics won't work. So that's the one thing I will say now. It, so you, people need to understand how the economics work, I think, before even, you know, entering, right, um, this, the, the, the field. Now, I think there is another problem. And that is that somehow, I don't know when and where, someone came up with this idea that presenting performances in exchange for a marketing platform is somehow an acceptable way of, of you know, um, <laughs> of doing things. And I really cannot stress enough dangerous that is that thinking is first of all it is an exploitation of artists who already are struggling secondly um giving marketing in exchange for performance just only means that is basically saying oh your whole goal here is to get more followers and have more fame. I'm not in this business for fame. I want recognition, of course. Of course I want recognition. I want recognition for my work. I don't wake up every day saying, how am I gonna get more famous? If I were, I mean, for what? If you're really an artist, if your your goal is to be a great artist, goal is to be great at, at what you do, is to gain more knowledge, and is to engage in this, you know, incredible communion of art, right, with, with the world. So, and I want more, do I want more people to recognize that? Do I want more people to appreciate what I do? Sure, of course, who doesn't? <laughs> you know, um, if I get fame because of my work in an honest way, sure, that's not my goal. So I think it somehow is, uh, it somehow is implying that that is our goal. And then the other, the other problem is, is that you're actually forcing artists to enter a race of marketing when really that's not what we should be doing. <laughs> Nowadays, if you have X number of hours in a day, how many hours are you spending marketing yourself versus working on your craft? And if you are just being constantly given, well, you're going to get more plat a higher platform and you're going to get more marketing. So now you're being forced to go into this rat race of marketing. Now I have to compete with other artists 
do I don't want to. Why do I, I don't compete with other artists? Every, there's enough room for all of us. And secondly, um, I have to now put more resources into continuing this rat race. I have to invest more resources to stay in the marketing game, which, and that's less resources that are going into my art and more resources that are going into my marketing. So now what really those presenters are doing, they're diluting the art because they're forcing artists to work less on their craft and work more on marketing to stay in the game. So um, it's really dangerous. It's really, really dangerous. I mean, and I'm not, and then the la lastly, um, it's, not, it's not a dignified way of treating artists. Financial compensation can never be replaced. Everybody deserves dignified wages for their blood, sweat, and tears. Everybody. I don't care if you are a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or if you are, you know, a janitor or if you walk the streets. Everybody deserves dignified wages for their blood, sweat and tears. It can never be replaced. So to to do that um, is is quite frankly um, you know, is I think a real, it's a real blow in the face of people's labor, of your, your, your life's labor. So I, I think that unless you have the vision and ability to go and raise money, then, you know, it's, it's really not doing a service to the art present. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, like people just getting started. No, I'm not this. We're talking, we're not talking about that at all. I mean, any level of performances should always happen. And people that's, that's, this is not, I'm talking about those who have given their life. I'm talking about those who are really, really trying to make a living off of this. And are, like I said, have given their life. And, you know, I, if it's, unless you can, you can really pay for it, um, it's doing a real disservice to the art. And remember, think, think about the other thing that's happening. If you're not able to pay, then those who have other jobs, they'll say, oh yeah, I'll do it because I don't need money anyways. So now you're, now you're actually given preferential treatment to people who are doing this part-time. Oh. oh. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, just, I just realized it. So it's like a bulb went in my head, but yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and the marketing rat race is what I'm kind of thinking about because like the way I find new artists or people is one of two things. It's either someone else refers me to them or like I, I, I scroll through my Instagram feed and I find someone. And what you said is really making me curious as to how do I find the artists that aren't in the marketing rat race, who aren't posting every day and 
how would I seek them out? Because that would be something that I'd be interested in as well. Like if that, someone, sorry, what? Thing that is the that is that is a very very good question that you are asking. That is um, because there are artists and they're better than everybody else because they're not putting their time into marketing. Mm. <laughs> They've decided not to play the game. They nobody knows who they are and no one knows where they are. Huh. Do you have any like insights as to how I get to them or do they not even want to be gotten to for lack of a better term? Um, I mean, I can I, look, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to, I can tell you right now, my own, my own guru sisters. Does anybody know who Gretchen Hayden is? Nobody knows. She's given her life. She's been studying since 1971. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have an Instagram account. She doesn't have a Facebook account. She's given her life, a white woman from 1971, mm -hmm. who has studied for that many years and had that much knowledge, you know, um, you know, I think there, and there's, and there's many, right. But my point is, is that, you know, that, that's, yeah. No, that, that is interesting you mentioned it because uh, like after talking to like say your like uh, the principal artist of Leela and the one the next thing I did want to do is reach out to the people who were like Guruji students in the 70s. It's just been a little harder. I did find Joanna B on Instagram and I've been trying to get Shardati and Gretchen these contact and getting to them as well. And mm -hmm. thanks for saying that. I, uh, that reminds me I need to start doing that again. Because I, I felt because with a lot of the senior artists, it was it, uh, when I first thought of interviewing them, I felt like I wasn't ready. But now I feel like I am, so I'm pretty comfortable approaching them directly. So that would be a good thing to do. And good, I'm glad. Hmm. I'm really glad. And Rashadi, we have ten minutes left, so I was, I was wondering, do you have a hard stop in the next ten minutes, or we can go a little longer? How do you feel about it? Longer. That's why okay. I think it was better. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, what? Saturday was better for me because I yes. was more. <laughs> okay that's good that's good so then i guess next thing i'd like to i, I think this is a good point to segue into leela endowment stuff is that something you'd be comfortable talking about sure sure okay cool so let's see how that yeah so um when it comes to see raising money uh and uh so that i think this is a good time to discuss say the work you've done with the leela endowment i remember the word when when you meant when i came across the term i don't really i didn't really know the difference between what an endowment is versus a charity and all that. So could you just, and then you clarified a little bit on a, one of the Zoom calls that I was in on with you and when you were doing like an event, but uh, just on that note, could you tell us a little bit about what an endowment is and what does the Leela endowment seek to do? Yeah, so endowments, I was mentioning that, you know, um, endowments exist uh, all over the world um, in education and the arts. Uh, but they basically are um, funds that you raise and you do not spend the principal. The idea is that you use the interest or the gains of the principal to as your, you know, as what's liquid and as what you as what you what you use, what you utilize. So the more, the larger you grow that principle, the more money you have to spend on your um, 
you know, whatever your particular craft or purpose is. So um, you need, for that reason, you need to have a very large amount for it to be able to make any kind of impact. And um, the, the, the really great thing about it is that, is that you have money in perpetuity, right? You will, because you never spend the principal, you will all, that money is there forever. You will every year have money that that you can that you can use. So for that reason, you know, like I was saying, all the educational institutions have huge, huge endowments. Um, I don't have. We have a whole presentation that we give that gives the amounts. But you know, the you know UCLA, you know, I think has maybe even a billion dollar endowment. You know, all of these all of these universities do now. The, institutions all have them as well, especially the very well-established ones, all ballet companies and operas and symphonies, um, you know, usually have multi hundreds of millions of dollars of endowment that they have built over the years. So, you know, um, and this is a brainchild of my guru sister, Rina Mehta. She really um, has, it's, taken a very, I think, um, very personal frustration to the way the economics of dance don't work, doesn't work. She's really, really taken that on um, as, you know, something to make a dent in because it doesn't really work. I mean, if you take it back to like mobile times, there was, a, there was a system, there was a patronage system, right? And artists were commissioned to live in the court, in the, you know, in the court. And they were, they were housed and fed and, you know, paid to, to, to make art, imagine, imagine. So that's when, you know, great art was actually made because you didn't have to worry about whether you were going to eat. Um, you know, and that patronage system obviously died, but uh, there was a, you know, a reclaiming and a renaissance during Indian independence time. And that's, you know, a lot of these great, a lot of all of the more contemporary masters, like my Guruji and all of his contemporaries, um, who were able to at least survive on the remnants of the former patronage system. They were able to keep it going to a certain degree because of that, right? But the next generation, which is us, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. There's no resources. And these arts will die because artists have to take all kinds of other gigs in order to make, you know, in order to make money. Um, they have to do, you know, all kinds of fusion things that they don't want to do. If you really talk to them, really want to, they would much rather, much rather, you know, spend time doing their own classical. In fact, when we did our continuum festival, which was 
where we presented artists of my generation to do solos, right? And to do it pure in the classical style, meaning we will give you, you know, one hour, you know, Bonsari solo, one hour vocal solo. You know, one of the things that artists were saying is that, you know, this is very novel. We don't ever get an opportunity to do our art. This is what I was, number one thing that I was told when we presented it was how happy they were that they had the freedom to do what they wanted to do and not be told, can you do fusion this? Can you do a jubal bandi? Can you do this? Because that's what our audience likes. And can you, you know, all of this stuff that, you know, and they have to do it and they have to kind of go through a bit of humiliation to be told what to perform by a presenter um, because they have to make money, because they have to eat and they have to pay the bills. So um, I think, you know, coming back to the endowment, we really feel that, you know, unless, and sorry, one more thing around it is that there's the grant, there's the grant culture, you know, um, which is Western, you know, that you write, apply for grants. That's also limiting. Now, again, you're competing for the same small pot of funds who are only gonna fund, they're not gonna fund two Indian artists in the same fiscal year. No. Oh, so the Indian arts are competing with each other in that same bracket? 100%. Oh. Since we are, we are absolutely pitted against each other because they, they, they will, they're, they, uh, you know, I wouldn't go, they're not going to, they're not going to admit that there's a quota, but they're not going to, they're not going to want to fund, you know, multiple. To me, it should be, you should fund excellence if they're, you know, regardless of who they are. Excellence is excellence. If there's more excellence coming out of one quote unquote ethnic group, well, tough, then every, others need to step it up. <laughs> right. But that's not, how it works. that's not how it works. Right. It's all. So you can do the grants and we very much are, we very much do do it. We write grants, we write a ton of, you know, um, but not only is it limiting in terms of us being pitted against other artists or being pitted against other artists of color, um, but it's also limiting because it's very unstable. You might, you might get several grants one year and the next year get nothing. What are you gonna do? How do you sustain your organizational budget when one year you have X amount of money and the next year you have so much less? So it's um, it's very stressful. And again, you are at the mercy of white um, funders. You are at the mercy of those who hold the wealth in that sector. So, you know, the purpose of the endowment is to actually be able to um, you know, not have to rely on these other systems, and to you know, be able to have our own. <laughs> because at the end of the day, there's a great amount of wealth in the South Asian community itself, and if we can work harder to help South Asians understand and feel the value of our artistic heritage, um, the, the incredible depth and dynamism and richness of, you know, our artistic traditions and why they are so important 
for the soul of our community and for the soul of the world, not just our community, I mean, the world, right? I mean, so many non-Indians have adopted our cult, our, you know, our traditions because of how much they have, it has resonated with them. So what our traditions offer the world, understanding the value in that and why it should be invested in, I use the word investment, not in a way that they're gonna get financial returns, but you will get cultural, spiritual um, return. And um, so I think, and, and we have, and what's been, what's been very encouraging is that when we, when we do take the time to, you know, talk about the endowment in this way, South Asians do support. They do want to support. And also the aspect of it being savings is very attractive. The fact that it's, you know, you're not just asking for money to pay for one program. This you're asking for money, even $1, your $1 is going to be is going to last forever. Lasting forever because interest on that $1 is being spent every year. So, you know, that's very powerful. Is that there are no other, you know, um, the only other endowment that we're aware of, the Katha Kendra has, and it's very, you know, I mean, I will say, by the way, Katha Kendra does have, an, does an amazing job of providing, uh, you know, uh, very subsidized, extremely, extremely subsidized tuition, subsidized training and teaching um, of Katak, right, to students. I mean, you you get housing and you get food and you get training. And I, I can't remember what I, we were there a couple of years talking with students and, you know, it's very nominal what they have to pay. So um, again, you know, it's a government funded institution. Um, they have an endowment and it's very small and that's very, you know, that's very tragic. It should be, you know, it should be much, much larger. So this is, you know, uh, our, our vision for trying to grow something in here in North America for the classical dancers and musicians, you know, and its sole purpose is to pay wages, is to pay artists for doing the work that they already do. Create new programming. It's to, it's to give artists what they already, you know, should be getting. Right. Yeah. Okay. A couple of things to touch upon there. Yeah, in the sense of investing in my community, the way I usually do it, like I haven't done a whole lot of donations per se. Like I'll do one in, in a, during a workshop or like say Faradi has this artistry video series so that someone I personally know a lot. And another thing I like to do, I guess, is workshops. Like I like to do workshops with different artists. I usually don't like pick up a whole lot from the workshops because like, you know, I'm doing my own style. And when you go back to your classes, you're not going to be practicing what you learned in the workshops. For me, it's a way to invest in my community and kind of get to know other people as well. Because my classes are solo, so I don't really have a class to interact with. So my interactions are different. And yeah, with Kathak Kendra, that is another place I'm very curious about in the in the sense because a couple of artists have told me like Kathak Kendra has a wealth of talent, but in the sense they they the they may be really skilled at their dance, but they not be they may not be great at like marketing or communicating their art. 
and that way they may get held back as to what they can achieve so that's something i've been curious about as well no i i agree with that but but that's actually part of what we were discussing you know um i went in uh, recently you know prior to the pandemic recently one of my guru sisters went and sat in gangani ji's class and we were very impressed and very happy what um was being uh practiced you know and but that's exactly right there's there's not like some big marketing that's happening They're actually working on their craft mm-hmm. right and i guess uh I guess since we're talking about Tata Kendra in India a bit, and I know you've had some experience teaching in India, uh, I'd just like to know what your experience was teaching in India, and did it feel any different from teaching in the states? You know, to be very honest with you, so I I've taught at my guru sister Sima Mehta at her um, school in Mumbai, um, which is uh, Chandam Nritya Bharati. a basically reop like a reinaugurated um school of guruji's parents school that was in kolkata so um you know to be very honest with you it it's not really that different <laughs> um you know maybe they talk a little different their language a little different um you know i i wouldn't I wouldn't really think it's I haven't found it to be particularly different to to teach. I think you know sometimes it's a little easier to teach the you know bhao aspects of the art because they are immersed in you know in the the culture from which that comes from. American your bow is a little american <laughs> and you have to work harder the authenticity of you know the bow of of you know of indians but um honestly outside of that it's it's really not that different really not yeah Yeah, the bhao thing is something that comes up a whole lot, uh, especially with artists, even with artists who have kind of developed their craft outside of India or outside of South Asian aspect, aspect like the certain expressions, especially like lajja and things like that. It's like for them, it's a newer thing, and it has to be like adopted in. It's newer, but I would say all of the other things, like especially you know, I've I've taught in 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 Mumbai, and those. you know whether they're stu- you know kids especially the kids but even the adults they're very westernized so you know they have their schedule is like monday violin tuesday tennis so um all the things you have to teach people here you have to teach them there it's the same you have to teach them what namaskar means you have to teach them you know even the stories of ramayan mahabharat they don't know them they don't know the stories anymore so that's why i say in that way it's not different you have to teach how to you have to teach etiquette the tehzeeb of indian classical dance classroom 
you have to teach you have to teach nowadays you have to teach in india and in america that the hizb is is gone everywhere because i'm thinking like so I, i grew up in india the way the, the reason i learned about the mahabharat and ramayana is not necessarily from my parents i just had a bunch of amar chitra katha which is like these comic about indian But mythology really have an interest yes <laughs> they was happened lying around and i just read them and then i got more interested but yes i guess that's how i learned it which is interesting yeah and uh, i guess coming to the nashadi coming to, to some of your performative aspects as well i just wanted to start off with shab the that's yeah. the, i think that's one of the first videos i saw of you and i looked uh, whenever i look at that stage uh, that kind of inspired me in the sense like whenever i wanted to art like interview people from pandit chaji lineage i always look at that stage i'm like who in the stage haven't i talked to yet because that's who i want to get next because like every like i've only seen two or three minutes of it but every single person did something that appealed to me and that's what i reached out to them about as well um, all of did you see the whole thing you streamed the whole thing when because i miss i i i i what last summer when during the pandemic when we we did our live stream we streamed the entire shop right i started the podcast in september and that's when i started reaching uh, so i started learning about kathakas in the us in about a little after that so oh. i wasn't clued into the whole scene yet yes and and i have actually gone around and asked a lot of the people like hey can i get this show can i is it possible to buy it but it's like the one but the general consensus is it's a one time stream thing it's one and done and then so yeah I, but yeah that's kind of where it was with that i'm sure i'm sure yeah. Yes. So, but so which up I guess yeah, yeah I uh, I guess your performance really stands out with uh you playing doing your doing the Kathak and the harmonium together and uh, you know when people realize what's going and there's this collective gasp and the claps going on and just uh, I guess from I'm very personally in, interested in this like how did you develop that craft of the harmonium and dance together it feels like that's something you you had your own niche about as well. Yeah, um there's definitely a story. <laughs> um so you know there earlier on when I was studying and training, I did not have the correct body lines to dance form, you know? I was very passionate about the dance. I had so much potential and was strong. I I had never had any formal dance training. I used to do bhangra lots and I always loved folk dancing um you know um which I could do. But classical dance is a whole another <laughs> you know whole other thing. There's no body lines in bhangra and and garba and ras, you know. Um and so I think a lot of that was actually a struggle for me. And there was a time when my understanding of the dance form and its purpose or my relationship to it was on the shallow side my understanding was that whatever choreography i got put in was a sign of my progress that if i get put into this choreography that means wow i have you know in with you know with these particular with this particular group okay then i've you know that's my my indication that i've made it to this and i've made it to that it really based a lot of my you know um where i was based choreographies because 
was at that time, Chitrisha Stan's company was really starting to, to, you know, take off. And we, it was just, a, it was, it was a, it was a heavy time. There was a lot of, it was a performance heavy era that had started really, especially in the early 2000s, but I would say mid, you know, 2004, 2005. So, um, you know, I desperately wanted to be, you know, I was, even though I, even though my, my real fascination and fixation and, and obsession with the dance was really, really about the philosophy and it was really about the way and manner in which Guruji taught it and how much it pushed me individually. But at the same time, you know, I was very also taken at that time by the glamour, you know, of the performance and all of that. So um, when I was doing, you know, trying to do choreographies, I got quite, um, you know, Guruji would be like, uh, no, 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 you're not fit for this. You know, he would get really kind of mad at me. <laughs> I mean, not mad, but just like, you know, he would kick me out of things all the time because I just wasn't strong enough and I didn't look good at that time with the other day. So, you know, he started having me stand to the side, stand to the side. And then he started saying, you play Manjita, stand on the side and play Manjita. So fine, I would do it, but I wasn't very happy. Um, then one day there was a harmonium and he's like, yeah, 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 you don't dance this, don't dance this. Go play that harmonium. Cause he saw one day that I was, I could, I had some vocal training, so I could do a little bit of, I could play a little. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, you were doing that yesterday. Yeah, yeah, play, play the harmonium. So I would start playing it and I was angry. I was so angry with him because I was like, I don't want to be a musician. I'm trying to be a dancer. Why is he making me a musician? And um, every time he would just keep going, I would keep trying to dance in that thing. And he would keep saying, you over there. And I would keep going. And I would do it. Sometimes I would cry, you know, I'd play, I was getting better. Then I would start doing footwork with it just because, you know, it was like something to do. Maybe I wanted to get noticed. I, you know, I don't know. I had tons of ego. And finally, you know, but I would do it and he was got even more excited. He was like, yeah, 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 do more footwork, do more footwork. And I was like, okay, but I, I was still really upset. You know, one day he came up to me he leaned over the harmonium. He looked straight into my eyes and he said, what a stupid girl you are. Why are you crying? You understand I am giving you truffles and you want Kit Kat. And then he pointed to the harmonium and he said, this is truffles. And then he pointed to the other dancers doing the choreography. That's Kit Kat. Just trust me, just trust me. So from that day on, even though I didn't really, I didn't fully understand what he was saying, I didn't fully, I knew that he was, he believed in something. It was very clear that there was something that he believed in that he was trying to get me to do. And I trusted that, I trusted that. I, I did not, I, I, that was not something that I fought. I was, I had very instinctual trust in it. And, you know, I started working on it and actually really practicing it. 
And so when, um, you know, there was a whole trip, I was in India and I started practicing like crazy. In the morning, I woke up before everybody else, I would work on it. And um, I would work on doing, you know, different, different, um, you know, different, different aspects of Kramalaya, even doing Teen Goon and all these things that were very, very difficult. I mean, it was like making my brain hurt. It was like, you know, I would be exhausted afterward because the mental um, challenge was such a full body experience, right? It was like no cell in my body was resting in order to make it happen. And, um, but after time, it was making me feel exhilarated. And it was, you know, giving me a whole different spiritual journey. And um, one day he was like, I heard that you've been practicing with the harmonium. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I mean, I put my hands together. <laughs> of course, that's kind of a trick question. If you say yes, they say, oh, really? You say no, what do you mean? Right. So you had to tread carefully, but um, he said, show me. And this was in front of the class, whole class. And so I, I showed him what I had been working on. And this was the first time at, that anybody had ever done. You know, nobody had ever was doing had ever done the, with harmonium. He himself played tabla, which is where the inspiration even came from. But no one had had ever played the harmonium and done it. And, you know, he was very, he was very happy. And he said, these are my teachings. These are my teachings. And I think, you know, he, that day was a very, it was a really, you know, he didn't really usually praise us so much, <laughs> but, um, you know, he gave me a very big hug that day in the class and said, now watch the fun. That's what he said, now watch the fun. And, you know, my whole, everything changed, everything changed. Um, my feet went from being the, he used to call my feet rubber. They went from being rubber to being the loudest in the class. My stamina went through the roof. My technique just went into a whole nother level. Um, I stopped caring about performance entirely. I working on nine and a half one one time in India. I mean, I started playing with upaj and improvisation, um, started doing chakras with it. I mean, you know, I would talk to Guruji and call him and, you know, share experiences and discoveries about my riyaz. I mean, I discovered riyaz through Kathak Yoga and through playing the harmonium, like true riyaz, where, where the riyaz doesn't lead to any performance or doesn't lead to any as we were talking about pain, it was just Riaz for the pure joy of the dance and the art. And, um, you know, I told him, I, you know, I said, Guruji, you know, I don't think I care about performance anymore. I used to say, I used to have these, you know, chats with him, you know, and, and he had this kind of smile on his face and he told, and the next week is when he decided to, start shop, start choreographing for shop. And um, where I ended up being, you know, uh, quite an anchor position, right? I went from being kicked out of choreography, I went from being like totally, you know, unable to do a lot of it to then being put placed in this piece. And he told me, he said, you know, your path is different. You will come back to performance 
through your practice of Kathak yoga. And he was right because all of those aspects of the dance, like the body lines and all of those things that I lacked before, now that I had technique, now that my footwork was strong, my laikari was strong and all these other things, now I was able to develop these other, you know, these, these other parts, but it was, it was backed up by, you know, very, um, by, by grounded practice and, and, and knowledge that I gained. And so, um, to be very honest, I learned, you know, that performing arts is not about performance and then came back to performance. Once I learned that <laughs> my attachment to performance was gone. And that's how, you know, that was how my journey was. So um, that's just a story. <laughs> that's my own journey and story on it. Um, you know, so it's it's meant a great deal to me. Um, I'm really uh, very proud and, you know, what that I've, after that many of my Kudu sisters and um, even younger generations now also play the harmonium um, and do, you know, do some, uh, uh, do dancing with it. So I think, you know, I think it's a great thing. And that's my story. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Uh, this is the reason I asked you, I knew there was a story because like I've seen some, you talk about it a little bit in some of the interviews. I kind of just skip over it because I wanted to hear it myself firsthand. So I didn't know it beforehand. I, I did that's a decision I made for myself. And one thing with Kathak yoga, I, I really like in the sense it's uh, because when you when Pandit Shesha did it and y'all do it, what is more impressive to me is that it's not just that y'all can do it, but you can pass it on to your students and they are able to pick it up as well. And that's something I find really impressive that you ha y'all have the ability to pass it down to students and have developed that skill. And so Rashanti, I guess at this point, uh, like coming to my last question, I want to give you a couple of options. Let me know which one you like to end with. Because so there is a, one we can do is future projects. One we could do is what would you like your legacy to be? And the third one we could do is uh, what is a message you'd like to leave for other Kathakas? So do you have a preference for any of them? Um, or if you have your own last thing you wanted to end on, we can do that too. <laughs> um, I would say, what was the second thing you said? Legacy. What would you like your legacy to be? Uh, I mean, I'm still mm -hmm. trying to, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a hard one because I don't see it as my legacy. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I see myself as being a, um, you know, a being mm -hmm. uh, as part of this, you know, lit, you know, long line of legacy, you know, mm -hmm. I am being in that yeah um so i don't know if it's not to and, and i'm not trying to discount my what who i am and what my own individual contribution is that's that's not it at all i'm very aware of what my own individual you know contribution is but i don't i don't see it as my legacy mm -hmm. I, I i would say it more that i would like yeah for the continuation 
of the legacy to be that the next generations and then the generations after them, you know, um, and so forth, right? That each generation can study the art with an appreciation for its integrity, for the hard work that's involved in it, and for maintaining the aspects, these, these very core aspects, very, very deep and core aspects, while being able to evolve it with thoughtfulness, um, with the way of being conscientious to preserving its, you know, its core, preserving its intentions, preserving all of these things, while also understanding, you know, changing times. So I think, and that's something that I strive for every day, every day. And so I would love for that legacy, for that to be, you know, the continued legacy as well. Um, and that, that's, that's what I saw my Guruji do. You know, he was constantly updating and innovating and pushing boundaries constantly, right? But the way he did it with such, um, with such deep attention to, to the training and to the excellence and to the integrity of the form, that takes a lot of time and patience to do. So that's what I, I would hope for, you know? Um, that's kind of, you know, what I would say. And I, I think I think I would love to just close with, um, you know, the art is, is really here for joy. So, you know, as far as like the thing that I would say to maybe the younger generations, I'm not anybody to, to say anything to anybody older than me, but, to those who, who are younger than me, um, you know, not to lose sight of that, not to lose sight of joy. And joy isn't, joy isn't, you know, um, you know, getting new followers or getting more hits on your, you know, video. I mean, like inexplainable joy, intangible joy of life of human existence. That's the reason why this, there's no other reason why I gave my life for, for this art. So, you know, yeah. Okay. So yeah, joy is a great way to end this podcast yeah. as well. So yeah, uh, thanks for coming on. I think yeah, it's been, I think I want, yeah. I think ever since I saw that, I think I saw the video in October last year and I knew that that's you are someone I definitely want to speak to and mm -hmm. I'm glad I got to do this. So thanks a lot. Yes. And um, thank you, Pramit. It's uh, really a huge, huge project that you're doing. So um, I commend you on that passion and the leadership that you're taking to do this. So all the best to you and, you know, um, as you continue it and also on your study of the art. So I'm sure I'll be in touch with you, but, you know.